If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn them to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we'll pick up in 1 Corinthians 1.18. And um, I've entitled our time in the Word today, Let Them Who Boast, Boast in the Lord. Say amen when you get it. Uh, you get to 1 Corinthians 1.18, and I'll start reading. Amen. I heard about five people. See if I can get about a hundred people. When you find it, say amen. All right. Making sure y'all looking at the word and, and not just me. This is God's word. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, says the Lord. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us or for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it, as it, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I... When I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, um, your weakness is stronger than all of our strength. What you forget is more than what we will ever, ever know as humans. Such knowledge is too high for us. And so we thank you that by your spirit, you have opened our eyes, that we see and we read and we do not leave here mocking, but we lean in and want to hear more about the greatest story ever told that is true. And so thank you, Spirit, for giving us life. We could be hearers of your word, and this would be foolish, and this would be dumb, and this would be crazy and asinine. But for those of us who are being saved, this is the bread of life. And so open our eyes and help us to behold the wonderful things from your law. Build up your people that we might boast not in men or women or our gifts, but in God. Do this for us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So when I was a kid, uh, I used to stay up after the news went off and watch Arsenio Hall. How many of you know who Arsenio Hall is? Raise your hand. I see some of y'all doing the dog pound. Okay, okay, you're showing your age. I got you. But I used to love to watch Arsenio Hall. In case you don't know who he is, he's a, a black comedian, but for a, seat, for a stretch, he had his own late night talk show. And amongst other things that he would do in his monologue, he would do something called things that make you go, hmm. And whenever he would do that, the, the audience would participate in it, and he will kind of just talk about things that were perplexing that, that they came across in the news or in life that week. And I, I have a confession to make that there are times when I read the Bible and my inner Arsenio Hall goes off. I read something and in my mind I'm saying, hmm, right? This is just, this is strange. It's perplexing. I'll give you a few examples. So uh, if you, you don't have to turn there. But in, uh, in, in Numbers, Numbers 11, the people of Israel are complaining to Moses. Oh, that we had meat. We're tired of manna. We ate fish in Egypt and it cost us nothing. We had cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. Now, if you're reading Numbers 11, you ought to say, hmm, because that, that doesn't sound like what the Bible says their condition was like in Exodus. If you go back and read Exodus 1 and 2, Pharaoh was a ruthless tyrant. Like he put burdens on them that he killed their sons and had them thrown into the Nile. That it wasn't free. You did not have anything free when you were in Egypt. You paid for it royally. And so when you read Numbers 11, you're like, huh, like th this doesn't compute. What about the New Testament? When you get to the New Testament in Matthew 16, Jesus is with his disciples and they're about to cross over the Sea of Galilee into Caesarea Philippi and they're arguing amongst themselves or, or whispering, we don't have bread. Where's the bread? Where's the bread? And Jesus kind of hears them and he says, why are you arguing over bread? He says, oh, you of little faith. And then he says, do you not remember the 5,000 I fed? Okay, maybe you forgot that. Do you not remember the 4,000 I fed? And y'all had to-go boxes. There was actually food left over. And here's the thing, that's in Matthew 16. Guess where those miracles were? Matthew 15 and Matthew 14. And so here they are, it's 12 of them in a boat. Jesus has just fed 9,000 on two different instances. And somehow they think Jesus can't feed 12. Hmm, what's going on there? I imagine that when Paul gets word from Chloe's people that they're fighting and quarreling, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. I imagine Paul hearing that report and just saying, hmm, this is strange. What, what, what's going on here? And here's the thing. They began to segregate around which men they liked the most. They were having heated arguments about which guy was the best pastor, preacher, whatever. And our passage this morning is a corrective. And it's really easy to miss how this section is related to the section before it. But there are some, some words here that I think link 
uh, these two sections. The first is a very simple word. You see it in verse 18. It's that word for. It's a conjunction. It's a transition word. In other words, when you read verse 18, when Paul begins that with a for, that, that, that linguistically or rhetorically what he's doing is he's continuing to build a case for something that was before it. And so that, that's a clue that these things are very much related. But I think the one that is most convincing is his repeated use of the word boast. And you see it right there uh, in verse 29. He says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In verse 31, he quotes Jeremiah 9, which is a judgment passage because Israel were, 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 were they thought they were wise. They thought they had made it. They only professed with their mouths to love the Lord, but their hearts were far from them. And so the Lord is intervening. He says, I'm going to judge this. I'm going to, the, the, the wise of you, I will thwart you. And so when Paul quotes Jeremiah 9, he's actually letting us know that what they're doing is not good. And so notice what he says. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So here's what I think is going on. Paul views their quarreling over which leader they like the most in verses 10 through 17. He views that as a form of boasting. They're not boasting in the Lord. They're boasting in men. They're boasting in leaders. And so what Paul is saying, you are giving praise to these men. And if the Lord Jesus Christ were to walk into your church and what he would see is you say, I'm team Paul and you say, I'm team Apollos and you say, I'm team Cephas and you say, I'm team Christ. Guess who he does not hear? He does not hear you collectively making much of his name. And so what you're doing is sharing glory that is due him with mortals who need him. And so God takes offense. If last week's text discouraged unhealthy boasting because it divided the church, this week's text discourages unhealthy boasting because it diminishes God's glory. Let me say that again. Last week, your boasting divides the church. Paul looks at it from a different angle this week. Your boasting diminishes God's glory. And so this is a corrective. What, he, what he's trying to do is to redirect their boasting upward. And this is how our lives were meant to be lived. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What does the New City Catechism say about how and why did God create you? He created you male and female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. It is right that we were who were created by God live to give glory to God. Boasting should in God. We all boast, right? We boast in our appearance. We boast in our gifts. We boast in our physique. We boast in our talents. We boast in our accomplishments. We boast in who we got to marry us. We boast in our kids when they score good on the ACT. We are boasting people. 
And yet, Paul is saying your heart was made to boast in God. Boast in the Lord. And we, like Israel, forget. We, like the disciples, forget. And we make God go, hmm, sometimes. And what Paul is doing in the passage is helping us to become big boasters in the Lord. And so what I want to do is just, I want to wrestle with that. That if you leave here today and God is bigger and God is better and you're talking more about him, then this passage would have done what it was supposed to do. So how do we become boasters in the Lord? I think the first thing Paul lays out is that remembering who we were before God called us helps us to boast in him. So that's the first point. Remembering who we were before God called us helps us to boast in the Lord. Now, when you look at the text, you'll notice that Paul calls them to remember. Look at verse 26. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were, right? So, so just, just camp out there. Leave your finger there. He's going past tense. Now, Paul does this all the time. He does it in Acts when he's defending the faith. He will oftentimes talk about his former life. And he does it in his epistles. He says in Galatians chapter 1, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently. He says it in 1 Timothy, I thank God who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, who appointed me to his service, though formerly in my former time I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, I received mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And so Paul is always remembering who he was and what he was before the Lord Jesus Christ showed up. And so Paul is telling them to do the same thing. He says, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. He goes on to say that you were the ones who were foolish according to the world. You were weak and you were low and you were the despised ones. Now, here's what Paul isn't saying. He isn't saying none of them were wealthy. He isn't saying none of them were wise according to worldly standards. Some of them had to be because when you plant a church, you need some wealth to have a house big enough to house the church. And so Paul does not say none of you were this. I think what he's leaning into is the great majority of you were not special. You were poor, you were uneducated, you were slaves, and you were weak. And we know more about this crowd, don't we? If you turn over to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So, so put the picture together that we're not talking about the dream team in Corinth. That when Paul is actually saying, you were not the dream team. You were the leftovers. You were the unpopular. You didn't fit in. You didn't have money. You didn't have the best education. And if you were known, you were known by really, really, really hard stuff. 
stuff that, that right now you don't want to talk about or remember. So when we're talking about who you were when the gospel came, you were not that impressive. According to the world. You drank too much. You worshiped the hustle. You had a shameful past. You slept around. You were unpopular. This is what Paul is saying. And you know what, Redeemer? This is some of us. Look around this room. We all have different paths to the Lord. But I guarantee you, if you start asking people who they were before they met Jesus, you'd be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't be. You would find people who, they were liars, and they were sexually immoral, and they were gluttons, and they were idolaters, and they were greedy, and they were thieves, and they didn't come from pedigree families. They didn't have money. They weren't wise according to the world standards. And this is encouraging. If you're here this morning, you're struggling with fitting in. If you're not the cool kid, or as you reflect upon your life, you begin to feel shame for things you've said and done and things you've left undone. And the temptation is to think that somehow you must make yourself presentable before God moves towards you and redeems you. Let me let you in on a secret in this text. It's not what Paul is saying. He's actually saying it works the other way around. That God chooses what is low and weak and sinful and unpopular and broken. And he doesn't need you to fix yourself. Fixing yourself and then coming to him makes you boast in you. But if he is the God who calls you out of your filth, then we boast in him. And so the key phrase here is were. This is what you were. This is what you were. You're no longer that. This is who you were. And that break in the past is enough for a standing ovation. But it's not a standing ovation for you. It's a standing ovation for him. Because he was good. And he was merciful. And he was kind. And he was gracious. If you want to begin boasting more in the Lord, take a few moments and just think about who you used to be. That's what Paul is doing. But there's more. If we're going to grow in boasting in the Lord, we must also remember how God saved us. So first is who we were when he called us. The second point is remembering how God saved us helps us to boast in him. Now, you'll notice that, that Paul doesn't just want them to remember who they were. Look at, look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, and when I came to you, brothers, so, so he, he's taking their memory back further. Remember who you, who you were, but let me go back one step further and remember who I was when I came, right? So that's what he's doing. He is jogging their memory. And here it was normal in Corinth 
for philosophers to fly through a town like Corinth and draw a following because they waxed long and eloquent and they showed off their oratorical and debating skills. And they would talk about the weather and politics and government and sports and ethics and and civic life that, that these famous philosophers would fly through a town or a city like Corinth, and that was their form of entertainment. They did not have a television or YouTube or Instagram or sports center. And so where people gathered was around gladiators, which they had in Corinth, and they gathered around these orators who came through. And so you would think that if there is this drastic change in their life, then Paul must have come through as this super educated, eloquent, make the words come off the page when he preaches. Like you would think that he is going to woo them and come to them that way. And that's how they're going to be changed. And then Paul subverts that. He actually says, But when I came to you, brothers, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You you see that? This is Paul's way of saying, I didn't roll into Corinth with an entourage of followers making much of me. I was weak and tired and my knees were trembling. And the question is why? Some people read this and they think that this is an inner emotional state of Paul. He came there sort of meek and lowly, but I actually think Paul is describing his physical state. Here's why. That word for trembling, it it literally does mean his knees are buckling. It's a physical word. But I think when you read Acts 16 and 17, which get you to Acts 18 is when Paul arrived in Corinth, you begin to see uh, what I think Paul is saying. In Acts 16, he was imprisoned. There was a slave girl who was, uh, she told fortunes, and Paul, just the Holy Spirit, just freed the demon out of her, and her handlers, her owners, got upset because that's how they became wealthy, off of her. And so when Paul freed her, they got upset. And they stripped him out of his clothes with Silas. They had him turned over to the magistrates and they beat him with rods. And here's the thing. When you see the beating with rods, don't think the Jewish form of persecution. That's the 40 lashes minus one. The beating with rods is a Roman form of torture. And oftentimes when they were beat with rods, they died. And so Paul gets almost beat to a pulp and put in jail in Philippi. Then he gets out and goes to Thessalonica. And then the Jews there want to put their hands on him. Then he slips out and goes to Berea. And then the Jews from Thessalonica follow him to Berea. He has to leave Berea. Then he goes to Athens and he preaches the gospel in Athens. And, and, and no one believes Paul because he starts talking about this resurrection from the dead. And he has to leave Athens. And then he finally lands in Corinth. And he's afraid. So afraid that the Lord has to come to him in a dream and stand before him and say, don't be afraid. Stay here. You see what's happening? Paul's wounds are probably still festering when he arrives in Corinth. He's probably broke because he's going to stay there and work with Aquila and Priscilla. 
And so what Paul is saying is not only were you weak, not only were you nobodies, not only were you not the righteous ones, but me, I was a broken man. I was barely alive. And so how is it that these two weak specimens, you and me, how does something so good come out of it? And maybe you're thinking, okay, Pastor Ed, well, maybe he, he, he waxed long and eloquent. Maybe he decided, even though my body is broken, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them arguments and complex arguments, and I'm going to sway them. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, when I was with you, I decided to know nothing. That's a choice. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And so that's Paul saying, even if I could get on your level and reason with you in that way, I made the conscious choice not to. You, you piecing it together now? So how then were they called? It's because Paul said, I'm not going to talk about sports or weather or politics or scandals. I'm not going to impress you with my knowledge. I'm going for the jugular. We're talking about Christ and Christ crucified. Y'all like stories? I got a story for you. You like wisdom? I got some wisdom that makes the wisest among you look like kindergartners. You want power because you like gladiators and you go, I got a story about power, but it's not what you thought. You could not have dreamed it up. It's the story that begins with God. God is, God was, and God will always be. And God sent his son, born of a woman, not in a palace, but in a manger. God sent his son, and the kings of the earth hated him. One wanted him dead and tried to kill all the Hebrew boys, but God sent an angel to warn his parents, and they fled to Egypt, the same place where they were in bondage, and then God called him back out of Egypt to fulfill what God had said out of Egypt, I call my son, and God had him grow up in obscurity in Nazareth of all places, and we, we have beheld him, and when, he, when it was time for him to be, to go into ministry, he called 12 disciples, but not the disciples you would call if you had a plan of changing the world. He called fishermen and tax collectors and zealots, and he had some women who loved him and served him faithfully. Some of them were noble, and some of them, he also saved them too. And people beheld him. He fed the hungry. He raised the dead. He healed their diseases and their infirmities. And when he opened his mouth, it was as if God himself was speaking. And people flocked, and they wanted to make him their king. But they decided to release a murderer and kill the author of life because who they really were was being shown. They were needy and sick and sinful. But this was a part of a bigger story or God would use their sinning to accomplish his redemption. And on the cross of Christ, 
God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. And it was the greatest demonstration of love and justice on the head of Christ. And he died. And three days later, he rose in power. And he hung around for several weeks. People are still alive. You can go interview. And he ascended to the right hand of God. And he will return. And he will make all things new. He will make all sad things untrue. He is preparing for you a place that is beautiful, more beautiful than you have ever seen anything like it on earth. And you will be beautiful. Your future self will be marvelous. And guess what? This story is not a story. It's true. His kingdom has come. And I'm not charging you for it like these other orators. It's free. I give it to you. And that message or something like it is what Paul proclaimed. It wasn't their status. It wasn't their strength. It wasn't his strength. It's the story. And even if the story that you just heard seems foolish, Paul says the reason it seems foolish is because you're perishing. The reason you demand more signs is because you're perishing. The reason you want to dismiss it is because you're perishing. But for those who are being saved, that ain't just a make-believe story. That is power. That is wisdom. That is love. That is the good news, and we will tell it and hear it over and over and over and over again. It's not Paul's eloquence. It's not his posture. It's not them. Then what is it? It's God's power and God's wisdom at work. Trip Lee has a book entitled Rise. He says, have you seen those cooking shows where the host surprised the contestants with strange ingredients and asked them to make world-class meals? The host will say something like, I want you to make filet mignon. I want you to make creme brulee. And I want you to make braised Brussels sprouts with bacon. But they only give you oxygen and cardboard. And when the contestants do make that meal, they show us that they are incredibly skilled. It's the same thing with God. He loves using lackluster ingredients because doing so makes it clear where the true credit goes. It goes to God. This is what Paul is telling them. Your lackluster ingredients of who you were And my lackluster ingredients of who I was, God takes those lackluster ingredients, he puts them together, and he makes you a five-course meal that only God could have done. You know what's telling? Think about who God used to draw you to Jesus. Was it your grandmother who had an eighth grade education? 
couldn't pronounce all the words in the Bible. But she loved her some King Jesus. She was not wise according to the world. But she loved her some Jesus. Think about your campus pastor. He's a broken man, imperfect and flawed, and God used him. Think about your own parents, your own mom and dad. I know we come here with our, 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 our jackets on and we kind of give this image that we got it all together, that we're knocking parenting and discipleship out of the park, and we're not. We lose our temper. We fumble at discipleship. And guess what? God uses our failings to rescue our kids. You, you, you catch what God is up to? He's actually up to maximizing his glory by calling people and using people who are deeply flawed. That is how God maximizes glory. And so if you want to boast in the Lord, go down memory lane. Who was it that led you to King Jesus? What was the message they told you? And I guarantee you, you're going to land there. They were imperfect. I didn't have it all together. But God showed up and made lemonade out of lemons. Last point. If you're going to grow in boasting, it also means remembering who we are now. Remembering who we are now helps us to boast in the Lord. Something happens when God's people are called to him through the preaching of the cross. You're no longer who you were. You're something new. You're a new creation. You were weak. You were unknown. You were in bondage. You were unholy. But now in Christ, you're strong and you are known by God. You have a name given to you by Jesus that no one knows but you and Jesus. He knows you intimately. Even if the world never knows you, the same power that, reside, that raised Christ resides in you. And this is exactly what Paul says in verse 30. Notice the shift. And because of him, you are now in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so Paul is actually saying, this is who you were, but right now, since you're in King Jesus, you are wise. Right now, since you're in King Jesus, you are righteous. You are forever vindicated before God. Right now in King Jesus, you are set apart and you are being made holy. Right now in King Jesus, you have redemption. That is that is freedom from bondage language, where Paul is actually saying, you have been redeemed, you are now free, you are no longer a slave. Now, here's what Paul is doing. He wants them to see that they're different now. And so you may not be the smartest in your class, but if you know Jesus, you are wiser than your non-believing professors. That's what Paul is saying. You may not be president or a colonel in the military, but right now, because the Holy Spirit is in you, you are more powerful than them. 
You may not be more outwardly disciplined than some of your non-believers, but because the Spirit of God rests and abides within you, you are stronger than them because of he who is in you. Last week we sang a song, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Y'all, I sung that song for 20 years, and I didn't know what a frame was. And that's kind of how some of those, those uh, older hymns are. What's a frame? I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Uh, Kevin Twitt, he has a commentary on that song, and he says, a frame is an emotional state. And he says, I dare not trust the sweetest emotional state, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. You catch that? That because of who we are in Jesus, we're no longer allowed to view ourselves based on our feelings. We view ourselves based on our standing in him. And therefore, we don't trust the sweetest frames, but we wholly lean on Jesus' name. And so what Paul is actually saying, you are wise, even though sometimes you might feel foolish. You are being made holy. You are redeemed. Even though sometimes you may feel like you're in bondage or not, you actually have freedom in Christ. This is who you are. This is who we are right now. And when we think on that, we boast in God. I'm holy. I'm sanctified. I'm being made more wise. I'm free. I'll close with this. According to one source, the most popular meme in 2020 on Twitter was how it started versus how it's going. The meme is popular because you'd see all types of people use it. People who were, were overweight and made a commitment to get in shape. You see a before picture and then you see like two years later and they're kind of ripped up, right? This is how it started and this is how it's going. And that, that, that was the most popular meme in 2020 on Twitter. So here's some of my favorites. The first one is Xbox. So this is Xbox. They're saying how it started back when the first Xbox came out. If you were in video games, if you wanted to get a flight simulator game, you had that pixelated version on the left. But now with the new Xbox, it looks like you're in the cockpit. How it started, how it's going. My next slide. This is LeBron James. This is when he was drafted as the first round draft pick in 17 years, well, 17 years ago from 2020, a kid from Akron. Now look at him, how it's going. Four-time NBA champion, four-time MVP, four-time finals MVP. How it started, how it's going. Next one, Naomi Osaka. This is from her own Twitter feed. This is who she's saying I was, this chubby biracial kid who kind of loved tennis. And now how's it going? I'm on top of the world. I'm Sports Illustrated Athlete of the Year on top of winning the U.S. Open. And this is probably my favorite, the next one. This is a, a, a guy named Thomas Pesquet. And on the left, how it started, he's a kid in a box that we get from Amazon today. And he's, he's created this space shuttle. And in 2020, he's a real astronaut who went into space. How it started, how it's going. Thank you. I got something for you, Christians. You know how it started? 
you were nobody. You were following the course of the world. You were not popular. You were not holy. You were not seeking God. How is it going right now? You're holy. You're righteous. You're redeemed. You're going home. And here's the question. How did you go from here to here? You didn't pull yourself up from your bootstraps and you didn't pull yourself up from the mud. You know who rescued you? King Jesus. And we boast in him. We boast in him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we bless you. We love you. We praise you for who we were, who we are, and how you did it. I pray that your praise will forever be upon our mouths. And I pray that these truths would leave us to not only glory in you, but to live as we truly are, holy, loved, known, wise. I pray for those, Lord, who hear these words and it sounds foolish. It sounds crazy. They're hostile to it. I pray that your spirit will keep preaching when I take my seat and that you will use the simple message of Christ and him crucified to turn them into your people. Give them faith, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.